Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 And run in, run in, and run in, run in, and run in, run in. <laughs> what a good intro. What a great, yes, it's true. Thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> what is he doing? And then I was like, okay, I got it. I got to I got to get on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, welcome back to another episode of Biomechanics on Our Minds, better known as Boom. I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And we're super excited to bring you a fun episode today all about running. (laughs) (laughs) That was trying to be my same voice. (laughs) (laughs) So today we talked, actually literally today, it was earlier today, we talked with Matt Trudeau, who is at Brooks running. He's the senior manager of Future Concepts, which is such a cool title. I know. It's such a boss title. And he was so fun to talk to. Uh, I feel like, you know, it's a good conversation when we like, I think we like almost ended it about like 15 times, but then we just like wanted to keep talking, like all three of us. So you might think it's over, but don't worry, it's not over. And only <laughs> grab a snack and just when you it feels like it's gonna lull, just grab a snack. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was so fun. We talk everything from what it's like working in industry and how to collaborate with academia. We talk about habitual motion and how we can design footwear and pick appropriate footwear based on our habitual movement patterns. We talk about the footwear biomechanics group, which Matt is the industry representative of. And we also talk about how his research and what he's learned has impacted his life. Yeah, so we want to listen in on that fun conversation. That was such a perfect summary. You almost don't have to listen to it, but you should listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> listen. So let's start with a bit of boom first. Bit of boom. So in the interview, I don't think I talked about this yet on Zoom, but Matt brings up something about a crutch and was like, Melissa, you'll know about that. Right. And I was like, um, like, I got it. And then I was like, I don't think anyone will know what that means. But like, literally, I've been on crutches for the past few weeks because I just had surgery for a hip labral tear and femoral acetabular impingement surgery. And so as I've been going through recovery, I've had just questions about different things that have come up and like was using like WebMD and just like Googling things. And then I was like, what am I doing? Like I'm a scientist, like I should use PubMed and like look at actual published research on some of these topics because I was finding that like my experiences weren't really matching with what I was finding online. Although I will say Reddit was a really useful resource. Hmm. But two things that have been occurring or that have happened. One is 
having really bad pain in my sacroiliac joint concurrent with my impingement pain. And these kind of started together when I was running in January or maybe even before that, just kind of a little bit when I was running and then just like started getting worse and worse to the point where like in April, I basically like couldn't sit up in a chair and like was just in like a lot of pain. And so my hip, like we really focused on my hip and like got an MRI of my hip and found a labral tear and impingement. So after a few months of physical therapy that wasn't helping and just like increasing pain, I decided to go through surgery. Since surgery, my hip has been feeling better. So surgery was about a month ago now. My hip has been feeling better, but I'm finding that the pain in my back and SI joint is like still pretty severe. And I'm hoping that as I like start moving more again, I think I was like compensating a lot. Like as I was sitting, I was noticing that I was like tilting towards the side that like I didn't have hip pain on and all that stuff. Anyways, I was looking up papers on these two issues and seeing if they're related and found one paper called Symptomatic Sacroiliac Joint Disease and Radiographic Evidence of Femoral Acetibular Impingement and found that a significant number of patients that have SI joint pain also have radiographic evidence of impingement and hip arthrosis. There is another paper as well that said that or called radiographic prevalence of sacroiliac joint abnormalities and clinical outcomes in patients with femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. And so this paper showed similarly like a high prevalence of SI joint abnormalities with patients with FAI, which is the short for impingement. And the paper went on to say that like the patients may show inferior clinical outcomes and persistent postoperative pain even after impingement treatment, and that the results of the study may allow orthopedic surgeons to better inform patients with SI pain that they might not achieve improvements in outcomes after hip arthroscopy in at least the SI joint. So it was a little bit of a bummer read, I'll say. But I'm still optimistic that if I can start to do things like yoga again and like move more that maybe my SI joint pain will improve. But if anyone out there is listening and has like any additional research on this or what might improve, I don't have like images on for that yet, but I see that coming um, shortly. You hear that all you biomechanists? Come help. <laughs> <laughs> help me. Let's make this better. <laughs> Another thing that I found really interesting is I still can't feel any of my thigh. Like, Pretty much from my hip to my knee, I have no sensations like when I touch it. I and mean, it goes like all the way around my leg, basically. So I was looking at the paperwork and it says like, oh, you might have some numbness that might last for, it might have some patches of numbness that typically go away after two days and, or at the most two months. And like, it's been a month and I still cannot feel like my whole thigh. Oh, so like this was like really bizarre. Yeah. But as it turns out, in another study of postoperative numbness, um, a survey of patients after hip arthroscopic surgery that was published in 2018 said that postoperative numbness is like actually a lot more prevalent than previous studies have reported. So they found like almost 40% of people reporting some numbness after surgery. 
And they said of those, like 43% had the numbness resolved by six weeks postoperatively. And then close to 70% of numbness was reported to be resolved by six months, which is a long time. But I guess I'm like, okay, it's six months. Like, and also 70%, like there's still like 30% of people that after six months, like, yeah, what does that mean? Their numbness, like, just never goes away. (laughs) Yeah, you just have like permanent nerve damage. And I actually had talked to someone who had arthroscopic surgery on their knee and she said it was years ago and she still has like patches where she, she can't feel touch either. So that was pretty interesting. And it said that also the duration of surgery was a significant factor for developing numbness with 50 minutes as the cutoff. And my surgery was definitely longer than that. So do both the labral tear fix and impingement, which is basically like reshaping the head of the femur so it doesn't pinch against the hip socket. And also a bummer read at the end saying that post-operative numbness was associated with negative effect on hip outcomes at the one and two year time points. But again, I'm optimistic. I'm pretty strict about doing my PT exercises and taking care of myself right now. So hopefully uh, I don't fall in that trend. Well, one, Melissa, you're super diligent and very good at like listening, I think, to your body and also to like to following different regimens. So I'm also optimistic for you. Good but I think <laughs> you are. well, I just think of the Nordic hamstring exercises that we had to do. <laughs> we followed very strict regimens for that. And the, yeah, <laughs> and you made sure we were all organized. But I think this is a really awesome bit of boom in that, like, I love that you're, one, we're able to share your experience, and then two, like, follow up with some hard science on what's actually going on and, like, really inform yourself. And, like, that also helps you adjust your expectations for what you can do, but also be conscious of, yeah, what you, like, can also do to improve and be better than, like, these numbers that you're seeing and things like that. Yeah. And I think this, too, is just, You know, when you have one injury, especially when it's in the lower extremities, it really affects your whole body biomechanics. And so just thinking about how it might be affecting your movement and being mindful if things, if you're not moving symmetrically, I think it's still important because it can have further downstream effects on other body parts and other injuries. Yeah, both body and mind too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. And hopefully we have some listeners out there that maybe have some have other experiences they can share with us. As always, we're happy to hear from them. And thanks again for the great bit of booms. Yeah, of course. Now we can run into our interview with Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Round of applause. So welcome back, everyone. We are super happy to be talking with Dr. Matt Trudeau, who is Senior Manager of Future Concepts at Brooks Running, and he's a respected leader in the fields of both biomechanics and ergonomics. And he's also the industry representative of the Footwear Biomechanics Group of the International Society of Biomechanics. And Matt, we just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. 
You mentioned that you listen to the podcast, so you probably know what we usually like to start off with, which is asking if you can start off by just taking us back to the time when you first became interested in biomechanics. Yeah, sure. So I did my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. And then after my bachelor's, I was pretty sure I wanted to do a master's degree, but I wasn't sure what in. And so I I went to do some work for two years in the construction (laughs) business while I was just thinking about what I wanted to do. And meanwhile, I was really, I was passionate about sports. I played a lot of hockey and ultimate Frisbee. Ooh. Yeah, in, in college. And, uh, and so I was, was wondering, what should I study? And uh, meanwhile, I, I've always been really passionate about sports and, and looking at athletes and trying to figure out what makes some athletes perform better. And so I, I was always just observing athletes' movements and, and trying to figure out, okay, what makes this player so good physically? There's a lot of mental mm-hmm. aspects, but physically. And so I just one. I remember one day I was just, I went out to a park and I was like, okay, I have to think about this. I need to go back to school. I know now, like, cause I'm in uh, construction just wasn't my career path. And so I just put my two passions together, which were sports and then engineering and math together. And I was like, what is that? And I guess it's biomechanics. And so, so then I, I, I decided, okay, biomechanics is my career path from now on. And so I want to get into a good program. And so I visited a bunch of universities all across the country. I, I was in Canada. I'm from Montreal. So I was in Montreal at the time. I went all the way to Calgary, visited there, Ottawa, University of Sherbrooke in Montreal, of course. And I ended up doing a master's at University of Sherbrooke in uh, biomechanical engineering. It's great to hear that career path. And I love how you really explored lots of different places and that you still remember. I feel like I don't even remember what I like all the different places. Yeah, it's funny because I, I, you know, I visited Calgary and I met a bunch of uh, professors there, Walter Herzog, who's been on the show, right? And then Mm -hmm. Darren Stefanishin at the time. And and then I ended up doing my postdoc there, like if quite a few years later, I asked them, hey, do you remember like this little, this kid who was like, who knew nothing, who came knocking on your door? And uh, and I think Walter was just being friendly and he was like, oh, yeah, I think I, I, I don't think you remembered me, but <laughs> he was nice enough to say he, he thought he did. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that's like all it takes. It's like, you know, I don't even care if, if that's true, but it made me feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that path. And now, like where you are currently at Brooks Research, we're wondering just a little bit what you do, what that looks like. Yeah, so I lead our lab team on the innovation side. The way our lab is constructed is we have two teams. We have the product assessment team, And we have the future concepts team and I'm leading the future concepts team. And the uh, product assessment team is focused on our inline products and shoes. So that's the shoes you see in the store and all our models that come out every year. And they're responsible for testing them and making sure that they perform well and, and that we're evolving. And also our wear test program where we send shoes out to runners across the country we have surveys and we make sure that they're not falling apart and they're doing well and that, that runners love them. And then my team is focused on more of the innovation and so looking at what runners will like in three to 10 years time. 
we're focused on developing and testing new prototypes of not just footwear, but really any product because Brooks is a, a running company. You know, a lot of people know us as a, a footwear company, but we're the company for runners. And then we're also focused on advancing the science of running biomechanics, which is, I think, something that people don't realize is that there's a lot of really cool science happening within the industry. And we're given the flexibility to, to kind of do a lot of exploration and research. And so what I've been focused on on that regard is run signature. And that's our philosophy about how each runner is really unique. Each person is, is unique in the way that they move. And so we want to really focus on that and understand, okay, how does someone move normally and, and how do they change their movement if they're not in the right product or if they're running? And how could we embrace their habitual motion path, which is the way that they move in their path of least resistance? And how could we provide products to the runner that could allow them to move in that habitual motion path? We believe that by doing that, they'll be less prone to any injury risks and, and they'll be more comfortable and, and they'll perform better when they run. Yeah, that's super fascinating. And I, I think we want to talk more about the methods of that and what it means to habitual motion. But first, I was wondering if we could go back a little bit to just talking about what it's like to do research in industry. And including last year, you published a paper called A Novel Method for Estimating an Individual's Deviation from Their Habitual Motion Path When Running. And it was a collaboration between Brooks Running, the German Sports University, and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I was wondering if we could just talk about what it was like to publish a paper as a researcher in industry and also collaborating with academics. Yeah. In my role, we work with a lot of academic researchers and our two main partners are Joe Hamill at UMass Amherst. Now it's Stefan Wilwalker. He was at the Sport University of Cologne. And before that, it was Peter Brueggemann, two really well-known researchers in our field. And we've also done some work with Ben O'Neig, who's my old supervisor, and a few others also. But Essentially, we're open at Brooks to uh, publishing our research because we want to, as I said, evolve the, the science and also spread the word about run signature because we believe that, that it's a scientific truth, that people are unique and that we should embrace that. Therefore, their shoes should be unique to them. And so we want to make sure everybody realizes that. And so, yeah, we're constantly publishing papers to hopefully evolve the science in our field. And so we do a lot of research with our academic collaborators, and we're always looking to publish that research and to help students also. We know that in academia, it's often uh, publish or, or perish. You know? So we're also, we want to help our, our academic partners to do their work and to have successful careers. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think I've heard a lot of maybe some of that it's challenging to publish an industry because you know, in industry, obviously, I have a vested interest in the company doing well, too, and kind of that balance between, like, promoting some technology or innovation and, like, kind of having a non-biased, like, paper um, or research. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that, if, if you've found challenges in that and ways that you've learned to kind of balance that. 
Yeah, it's tricky because in the industry, you're right that there are certain things you can't publish. Like I would love to talk about all the prototypes that we're building and to publish papers on them. Yeah, but, but the thing is that that sometimes these products are going to be coming out in, in three or, or six years. And, and there's always that factor of like not giving up some competitive advantage, which is too bad, but I understand it. So as a researcher and, and coming from academics myself, I'm, it's so tempting to, to you know, publish right away and, and talk about it. But in my role, yeah, we're kind of restricted in, in that regard to publish on uh, more of the basic science aspects. And that's, it's cool because working on run signature, it's such a unique topic that we do a lot of work on that. And that is fair game for publishing. So those are the papers that we mostly publish on. And like you said, we published our protocol, like our testing protocol that we use in our lab today. Mm -hmm. And so other labs could use that protocol if they want to now. And we've also published a, a validation recently of, of that. It's somewhat of a validation. We have two MRI papers that we've published. And, and it's a pretty cool study that we did in, in Cologne with uh, Stefan Wilwalker and Peter Brueggemann and, and Joe Hamill, where we had runners run on a treadmill. They were right next to an MRI machine. And so every 15 minutes or so, they would hop off of the treadmill and get an MRI. They were they basically <laughs> ran to fatigue. They ran for 75 minutes doing that. And so we could see the progression of their cartilage volume in, in their knee as they were running. They did that three times in three different shoes on, on three different sessions. And so it was a pretty yeah. cool study. And we found some pretty cool results where the cartilage volume got reduced. So there was cartilage volume loss with fatigue or fatigue is kind of a touchy word. It, it was like with the prolonged run, the cartilage volume loss happened. And also they had different cartilage volume loss levels for each different footwear condition. Wow. And then there's another paper we published on that study in, in Nature Scientific Reports just, just recently, where we found that the runners who were lower deviators in their, like they deviated less from their habitual motion path, had less cartilage volume loss. Mm -hmm. And the shoe that allowed them to reduce their deviation from their habitual motion path was also associated with less cartilage volume loss. And so that's kind of wow. suggesting that there's less loading when you're not deviating as much yeah. away from your habitual motion path, which was a really cool result. And so that's an example of how I was really proud of that study because as a researcher in industry, I was able to contribute to and have my team contribute to the advancement of, of science and of, uh, of running biomechanics. Yeah, actually, just since you brought that up about the low deviators, I was wondering in the paper and the white paper for the run signature, there are some mentions of these people who deviate less from their habitual motion path in these different conditions, like running on a tilted surface or things like that. And I was wondering if there was a different relationship between who these low deviators are and their expertise or some other feature that you guys were able to measure in the study. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and no, actually, you could be a really experienced runner and uh, be a high deviator or be a total beginner and be a, a low deviator or a high deviator. People are all completely different. And because you're a high deviator doesn't mean that 
you're at a disadvantage necessarily. It just means that you could benefit from a different, a different shoe than someone else. According to that, that hypothesis of the run signature, it means that in the future, you know, people might be running in personalized shoes that have specific individual characteristics that leverage your unique self. So it's a pretty cool thing to think about for, for the future. When you're talking about the habitual motion pattern and, and running more towards like that, how do you measure that? Like, is it a person running barefoot? Is that like their habitual motion pattern that you're striving towards when you're wearing shoes? So how we measure it is what we're doing right now. And it's a really good question because it's tough. But what we're doing right now is we have runners come into the lab and then they do a, a squat. It's just, just a simple knee bend. And we mm-hmm. use motion capture to measure the kinematics of their, of their knee and of their ankle when they're doing that knee bend. And there's less than half your body weight on each one of your knees when you're doing that movement. So that's the movement that we're using to estimate the path of least resistance of your knee. And so that's your baseline. And then we have someone run in, we call it a sock shoe. It's actually a sock with like an insole glued onto the bottom. And we have them run in that condition. And the thought is there that we wanted to remove any footwear technology from the condition just to um, allow them to run without any shoe influencing their movements. And we find that when people are running barefoot, it's a little painful And so people tend to change the way they run and run with a forefoot strike. So by adding that small thickness of cushion under their foot, we think that we're capturing the natural way that they're running. And we compare that to their their squat to get a level of deviation from their habitual motion path when they're running. And based on if they're a high deviator or a low deviator, then the next step is uh, we test them in multiple different shoes, and we could tell which shoe allows them to reduce their deviation from that initial value that we we calculated. So th- does that Along- make sense? It, that's yeah. basically a summary of our <laughs> of the protocol paper. Your question was really good because the squat is a is an approximation right now of someone's habitual motion path baseline. But I think that in the future, the the big question is, how do you actually measure someone's baseline? When you run, you you might have different levels of loading in your knee compared to to Joanna, for example. It might be more symmetric from medial to lateral on your knee, whereas Joanna might have a little bit more loading on the lateral aspect of the femur or or tibia, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's going to be important to, to... find some ways to figure out, okay, what's your individual baseline and how could we leverage that with running products? And I think it's not just going to be a squat, you know, it's got to be, what are you doing in your everyday life? Right now we're sitting in in a chair, but you also go about your day walking around, walking upstairs. And so how much of that am I doing and how much of that are you doing? That defines who we are and our biomechanical status throughout the day. And that defines your baseline, your habitual motion path. And so when you're running, are you deviating a lot from that loading pattern or not mm-hmm. so much? And that I think is, is the future of, of run signature. I love that framing of the habitual motion path, not just being about running. And you've done a lot of reframing of running in general, just 
that there's not this correct way to run, that running in your habitual motion path or what you want to design footwear for shouldn't just be about just for your run. It's really about what you're doing in your daily life. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And just find the concept of run signature so interesting. And as I'm, I'm trying to think about how, what it would look like as it's like implemented as runners are going to look for footwear. It's interesting to hear it from the biomechanist perspective and like the runners coming into the lab and doing the analysis, but that's obviously not scalable to have a runners come into a motion capture lab and do that entire process. So I'm, I'm curious what you see the process looking like from a runner kind of maybe if it's possible to move that out of a lab. Yeah. What we've found as a solution to that, just to give some context to your, your question also, it's that for the last 30 plus years, the way that footwear is fitted to the runner is they go into the running store. You look at the level of pronation of a runner when they're mm-hmm. and, and you, if they pronate a lot, you give them a motion control shoe, you know, with a big piece of really hard foam on the medial side of their foot. And if they don't pronate much, oh, you give them a neutral shoe. But the fact is that that runners get injured a lot first. And the location of injury that is the most prevalent is the knee. The knee gets the mm-hmm. most injured. What, meanwhile, we're looking at the ankle and, and the foot. Uh, we've been looking at that for the last 30 years. So run signature is focused on the knee because it's the joint that is the most injured in runners. It's challenging to apply the run signature science in the store because stores aren't set up right now to be able to measure the knee. And so we have two things today. We have a survey online, which isn't ideal, but maybe these days it's the best we could do because not many stores are open. But there's a survey you could go through that asks questions about it. It's our shoe finder about run signature and, and doing some movements and looking at your knees. But we also have an app that we use in store that measures. It's kind of a motion capture system. It's and and it uses an iPad with uh, reflective markers that you put on your thigh and on your uh, your shank and on your foot. And it's an easy way to capture. It's not perfect, obviously, but it's a way that we can measure the knee and the ankle and have people do a squat and then run and understand if they're high deviators and low deviators to be able to guide them towards a shoe. Okay. That's so interesting. It's just making me think of times that I've gone to go get a running shoe and that's pretty much exactly what has happened. But another thing that they've done when I'm getting a shoe is just to like go outside and just run and just, they've asked like me to tell them which one's the most comfortable. And I was wondering if any of these have been related to comfort, which I know is like just based on personal preference. But I just remember being in a running store and like one of the workers was like, I wish that people could try on their shoes blindfolded because they're like picking based on like colors available or like the look of the shoe. And he's like, I just need people to pick like what's the most comfortable without thinking about that. But anyways, I was just wondering if comfort plays into that at all. Yeah, comfort is super important, obviously, you know, because there's fitting a shoe biomechanically to a runner. And then there's the runner's preference, which is really the most important thing. Because if the shoe, according to our science, should work perfectly for you biomechanically, 
but you hate it and it's uncomfortable, then definitely don't run in it. So comfort definitely plays a role in the perception of the shoe and the experience that you want to have in the shoe too. If you want a cushion experience or if you want kind of a, a bouncy energy experience, but the comfort question comes from a paper that, that Ben O'Nig published a little while back. It's the called the comfort filter. And if a shoe is comfortable, then it should be right for you and it should minimize injuries and, and whatnot. I reached out to Benno and I, and I was like, hey, are you saying that there's nothing else that's important? Is it just comfort and, and that's it? And biomechanics doesn't matter. And he was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> like, comfort is a crutch. That's how he called it. I thought it was a pretty good an analogy. And one that you could probably relate to these days, unfortunately, <laughs> Melissa. But it's a crutch until we have a biomechanics answer to the problem. Mm-hmm. We're not quite there yet. We don't have a, a perfect correlation between a shoe that biomechanically is correct for you and a shoe that is, is comfortable. Because there are so many factors that go into that. So we're not quite there yet. But we know that the answer is looking at you as an individual and trying to fit a shoe to you, not to the, to the masses. Totally makes sense. <laughs> I totally, yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I love that you talked about like just reaching out to different researchers and asking them. It seems like you're very open to collaborating and you're not afraid to ask like these important questions that really progress the field. I think that's something, being proactive in, in this field is really important. You know, there's a reason why there's a, corresponding authors to to papers you know it's it's because feel free to ask them a question you know if you read a paper and you have a question i always respond when i get emails from students asking me hey i didn't quite understand what you did here in your paper i'm like thanks for asking here's what i did so i think there should be more of that that's such yeah, a good but... point because i think you're reading and you're like you just are like oh something's wrong with me that i don't understand this <laughs> and like don't even think to like reach out and seek some clarity yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a great follow-up to a journal club. But just wanted to say, speaking to your collaborative nature, we mentioned earlier that you're part of the footwear biomechanics group that was mm-hmm. informally established as a working group on functional footwear in 1993, and you're now the industry representative. Um, so we just wanted to talk just briefly about what that role entails and about the larger aims of that group and how it's been for you. Yeah. So the group, basically, we're promoting the exchange of of ideas and and collaboration across researchers in in the field of footwear, footwear science. And something that's special about the group, I think, is that there's a good mix of industry folks and and of people in, in academia. And so one of my roles is really, how should I say, heighten that collaboration between industry and academics. And we host the Footwear Biomechanics Symposium. It's every two years. It's kind of a satellite conference from the ISB. It's a really good platform for students to meet people in the industry. And uh, we have industry people presenting at that conference almost as much as academic people are, are presenting at it. It's a really good opportunity for these people to meet where they wouldn't have a chance to meet normally. I think it's a good way for academics to understand what the work is we do in, in industry and find open positions in industry if, they're, if that's something that's interesting to them. And also for industry to learn a little bit more about what academia is, is up to mm-hmm. and asking questions and, and basically growing our field in that way. 
my role is to try to figure out, yeah, how can we foster that relationship between academia and industry? We have white papers that we're coming out with, by the way, for a biomechanics group that we publish. I think everybody should follow us on Twitter. It's Footwear Biomech is uh, our handle. And we currently have a logo contest for Footwear Biomechanics Symposium in 2021, which is going to be in Sweden. If anybody wants to have their logo represented at the conference, it's it's a great opportunity. And also becoming a member gives you two years of footwear science journal membership. And so that's a good opportunity too. And it's just a really good group of people who are like-minded and who love talking about shoes, not just running shoes, but but really any shoes, working shoes, whatever. Well, yeah, because you also talk about, well, you've studied ergonomics some, and I'm sure that other types of shoes definitely come into play with that as well. But yeah, that's awesome. We'll definitely... Thank you for sharing that competition and more about the footwear biomechanics group. It, it seems like a really awesome group and it's cool to see your role as like bridging industry and research. And we just have a couple questions left. We were wondering if you could tell us a time when you felt like you failed, whether that was in your current role or previously in grad school and what you learned from that quote failure. Yeah, I was anticipating that question because I hear it. Every, it's really <laughs> funny to hear all of the, the answers from all your guests. And so it's, it's a good question. And I was thinking about a lot of fails. I mean, obviously, we all have a lot of fails because that's how, how we learn and grow. And one obvious fail that I was thinking about is, so I had just started a job as a research assistant at Harvard. And I was like two or three weeks into the job. This was before I ended up doing my doctoral degree there a few years later. But this was like two or three weeks into my, my job. And I was doing a lot of wire management. Like for anybody who's collected data, collected EMG data and whatnot, knows that there's a lot of wire management happening. And we had a, an active motion capture system called uh, OptiTrack that we were using. And so I was like meticulously cutting tape around like a, a sensor to make sure that it was attached to, uh, to the person's body correctly. And and I snipped the marker off, like the, the wire. So I will like, basically, that was like a, a few hundred bucks right there. And having to like figure out what marker to replace it by in the experiment and telling my manager afterwards, hey, sorry, like I'm, I know I'm two or three weeks into the job, but I already damaged your equipment pretty bad. <laughs> and so I think from that, that was a pretty obvious fail right there. And, and I think what I learned from it was, was really paying attention, you know, and being really detail oriented in my wire management and preparing <laughs> in advance to like all the strips of tape. And since then, you look at like, while I'm preparing an experiment, all the strips of tape are, are already cut. They're all lined up and all the markers are there. And I've rehearsed. So that was kind of a wake up call. Like, hey, <laughs> I better be careful in the future. So that's one example of an obvious fail. Thanks for sharing that. Definitely. I feel like anytime you're doing any kind of new protocol, you think, oh, I have it all down in my head. And then, <laughs> yeah, you go to do it and things like that happen. So luckily um, I kept my job. And so <laughs> <laughs> my, my supervisor it was just like, okay, ma- just make sure it doesn't happen again. And I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> you're like, I know it won't. It won't. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Well, and then you never did it again. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so 
So our last and, and final questions, our favorite is what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? It seems like you're already a pretty future thinker as you're planning for things that are, as you said, years out in the future. But what are you most excited about? Well, I think especially right now with COVID, one thing that comes to mind is testing in the wild. I realize it's not that exciting of an answer because a lot of people probably give you that answer, but it's being able to measure biomechanics out in the real world and developing a, kind of a hybrid model to testing where you have some people come into the lab and then some people are out doing their own thing out in the real world using wearable sensors and being able to, to test products or just do academic studies outside from the lab. And, and that's becoming more and more important right now, as you all know. So I would say that's one thing. And then just bringing back the run signature idea, I think it's important to look at individuals and consider each person who comes into the lab, not just as a subject number, but as a person. And what have they been up to recently? And, and what have they done in their life that could explain the results that you're seeing in the way that they move. One thing that frustrates me a little bit when reading some papers is comparing means. You know, you see, oh, we compared this mean to in this group to that mean in that group, and there were no significant differences because the conclusion is that everybody is different. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we... We know that. So what's the next step now? What can we totally. do to better explain our results based on the fact that their people are unique? And so I think that more complex stats maybe in the future, I don't know, maybe epi studies that include stuff like people's habits, maybe people's DNA, people's including some factors of, that describe how unique each person is into our models is going to be super important. So we really enjoyed our conversation with you and everything we have learned from it and just really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And we're wondering if people listening who are also interested in your work, where they could find you or learn more about your research and even run signature and some of the things you've talked about in this conversation. Yeah, sure. They could find me on social media, on Twitter. I'm not very active, but I, that's how I keep up with the literature a, a lot of times because I, I follow a lot of people who are really active. Mm -hmm. So feel free to, to shoot me a, a note on there. And then just emailing me, I think, matt.trudeau at brooksrunning.com or LinkedIn also is, is a good way to connect with me. If you have any more questions about what life is like for a biomechanist in industry or anything else, really. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been super fun. And I feel like I'm just itching to go for a run now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Except for the smoke. That's <laughs> the second part about it. Yeah. yeah, I ran around at the living room the other day just to get a run. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a story to tell. I don't know if you guys want to cut it or, or include it in your, in your show, but it's kind of a funny story of how I actually got into industry. And it relates to one of your, your previous guests too. So I was a sure. postdoc with Ben O'Nig at University of Calgary, and I got to be a chair at the World Congress of Biomechanics in Boston. I think this was in 2014. So I was a chair for, for one of the seminars on footwear biomechanics with Tony Arndt, and Tony was the co-chair. So <laughs> I get an email from Tony Arndt, uh, I think it was three days before the conference started, 
And he was like, oh, one of our speakers from our session just said they couldn't come anymore. It was Simon Bartold. I remember he was out. He like he couldn't travel or something. And so we're just going to have an open spot. So people are going to take a break. And I was like, wait a second. Like I could present. I have a poster at this mm -hmm. conference, but like <laughs> I've got 48 hours. Like I could make a quick presentation and it, like maybe this is an opportunity. And so I, I asked him yeah. and he was like, uh, sure. Yeah, why not? Okay. And so, so that's what I did. And I presented at the, at the conference and it, it was kind of nerve wracking at first because it was in, in front of a multiple hundred people in a pretty big session. And so I presented and, and after that, the manager at, from the Brooks lab afterwards, Eric Rohr came, came up to me and, and he was like, he liked my presentation and we started chatting and then one thing led to another and, and I ended up at Brooks. And wow. so- it's kind of a funny story. It's one thing I would say as uh, advice for any researcher really is to, is to be proactive and search for opportunities that get out of your comfort zone. I feel like that's a perfect example of something that would get you out of your comfort zone. I was just going to say like how brave that was, because I think even when you know you're going to be presenting like months ahead of time, it's still scary. So putting something together like that is really impressive. Yeah, thank you. It's always a good story to tell too. If if you fail, it's a good story to tell. If you succeed, it's a good story to tell. Being proactive <laughs> and putting yourself in funny, stressful situations is, is there's no losing really. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of win-win spin we like to put on things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that that story. That's awesome. Yeah, no problem. I did have one more question. I know we're like kind of pressing on time here, but I was like, I was actually curious how, I always am curious how the research that people are doing influences their own life. And so I was curious if you're a runner and if the research that you've done with Brooks has influenced maybe the footwear you choose or how you run, I guess, just how it's impacted your life. I've become way more of a runner since I started working at Brooks. And I'm pretty lucky that in my position, I get to try out a lot of shoes. And, and I used to be, before Brooks, I used to be like, oh, I could run in any shoe and it doesn't really matter. It's like, and now I definitely have a preference for certain shoes. It's like I've run so many and I get to test so many that I know what I like. And so <laughs> those are two things. But yeah, definitely being at Brooks, every time I run, I think about what I'm, I'm running in, like the shoe that I'm running in and the products that I'm using. It's definitely changed my life. Wow. That's amazing. It kind of reminds me of, I always like ran in the same Mizuno Wave Rider. And then one version that they made, it just like felt different. And I was like, I went back to the store and I was like, these aren't like the Wave Rider I always run in. And they're like, oh, yeah, they kind of changed the toe box a little. And I'm like, well, why would they do that? <laughs> You're like, you just get used to like, I know they're obviously like, as things are advancing, they're trying different styles. And it's just like funny to just get to know like what you like and be able to tell any like small deviation in that. Totally. Yeah. And the thing is, the shoes constantly evolve. I used to be like that too. Like, this is a really good shoe. Like, why do they not just keep making it for the next the 20 same years? one? Yep. <laughs> yeah. like, but, but the thing is that compounds, you know, the, the foams and fabrics that the shoes are made out of continuously evolve and mm -hmm. get better. And so we have to find a way to integrate them in, into the shoe. And there's also that maybe 
the fit of that wave rider sucked for most people, but was perfect for you. Mm-hmm. And like they had yeah. to figure out how to make it better <laughs> for other people. But meanwhile, it was a downgrade for you. So it's like, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but I know what you mean. It's like, it's frustrating when you have a favorite shoe and it, it changes on you. Yeah, exactly. On the bright side, I could buy older versions for cheaper off eBay, but still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Stock up if you find a shoe that you're absolutely <laughs> in love with. I would recommend stocking up on it because <laughs> it's probably going to change a little bit. Although companies are pretty good at understanding what makes the shoe good and of keeping those features in the shoe. Like at Brooks, for our, some of our shoes, the first fit is the best. They're so comfortable, and, and we know that, and so we don't want to lose that in in our next mm. iteration. Mm. We test it over and over again on dozens and dozens of runners to make sure that we maintain those wins in in the next version of the shoe. So it's rare that I think shoes change drastically, but just to make sure, yeah, if you find a shoe you love, might as well just stock up on a few pairs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, well, thanks again, Matt. I just like noticed that there's like a teddy bear in the background of your video which makes me think like you also took some time like these are already challenging times and like taking away from like family time and work time and just like we just so appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and share your insights about what it's like to work in industry and these new innovations so yeah he he comforts me now and again this this teddy bear you know in these in these difficult times you know you need some uh, some friends to to be there for you (laughs) i I have a a three and a half year old and so his school is closed uh, today because of the smoke and so yeah in in times of covid it's been a little challenging as it it has for most of us we're just finding different ways to work and uh, and i think it's we're constantly evolving which is kind of cool to see how people adapt yeah that's definitely been a theme and i love yeah i love how your research is very amenable to that yeah like our lab is is open for testing right now but finding testers is is kind of challenging but we're also testing way more outdoors normally. Now we're kind of in a pickle because like we can't test outdoors because of because of the smoke. The smoke, yeah. <laughs> and so we have to test indoors, but we have a COVID protocol that we've come up with, wearing masks and not more than three people in the lab and so on. And so we're working around those constraints, you know, and trying to find a way, as I'm sure everybody listening to your podcast is too. So it's interesting, but but really challenging. Never boring. <laughs> yeah. How are you guys doing with your research? Are you going into the lab or have you been basically home for the past four months or so? More that. <laughs> oh, really? Um, so yeah, it's- we're, we're starting to be able to go in for a few experiments here and there, but the populations mm-hmm. that Melissa and I work on are primarily older, so we mm-hmm. can't really do any of those experiments. <laughs> Have you caught up on your writing and your analyses? Definitely. <laughs> Still yeah, catching definitely up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I think some of my research has been amenable to like doing like mobile research and interventions, which has been really fortunate. But yeah, I haven't been into the lab since February, I think, other than to just like pick up things they need. So yeah, strange, strange times. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, best of luck. And uh, and in, with your rehab, too, it must be so difficult. Yeah. It's frustrating. Yeah, it happened at the beginning of all of this, too. And it was like the one thing that I felt like I had 
to get through the stresses was like to be active and outside and be running and like having that taken away has just been really, really hard. And not just like running, but like the past few months, even before surgery, just like not being able to move really at all. The fact that I can like sit in a chair right now is like I have all my ice packs around like my back and my hip to kind of like numb it up. But yeah, it's been tough. But luckily, I have a lot of amazing friends and family to lean on in in these hard times. Yeah, good, good. I wanted to just say good job, guys, like for you guys are real pioneers. I feel like you're the first real biomechanics focused podcast that has made it big time. You know, I feel like everybody is is following you guys and you have a good mix of entertainment and of, of learning and, and really good guests who too, and also including students and students stories. It's it's pretty cool. So so good work. I know it takes a lot of work to do something like this. And so and that all often goes unnoticed behind the, the scenes, but you guys are doing great. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And definitely couldn't do it without awesome people to talk to like you. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you guys just make it fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to. Anytime. Thanks All right. Again, well, I might have to take you on that. <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem. I could tell you some stories, some more stories about industry if, if you'd like at some point. How about in three years? I, I'll be allowed to tell you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I got more stories. <laughs> yeah, than that. we'll circle back. <laughs> no, that's the only thing I regret in this inter- is that I, I can't tell you more about what like I'm, we're working on today because uh, there's some pretty exciting stuff coming up in the footwear industry and footwear science. We'll just have to have you cool. back in three years. <laughs> it's a <Yeah>. deal. <laughs> Maybe this one is cliffhanger, so stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, enjoy the rest of your day, Matt. Again, we appreciate it. And this has been really fun. Thanks. You guys too. Bye. Yeah, take care. Well, thanks again to Matt for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate him giving his time and his insights. And yeah, just had a really fun time. So now we will talk about some of our recent failures. (laughs) Yay, fails. Melissa, did you (laughs) say that you had a fail to share with us today? I do. And again, not to like keep circling back to my current injury, but (laughs) I've found myself, this is like more like, I guess it's not as much of like a fun fail, but I've felt like on reflecting on how this injury happened and seeing it as like, definitely an overuse injury and also something that maybe if I had better listened to the pain that I was having when I was running, like before it progressed into like walking and sleeping and everything, maybe I could have done some things to prevent it. And I think thinking back on like past injuries, I've had like you know three or four stress fractures in my shin and just like a lot of stress injuries. And I don't know, for some reason, I feel like this injury has really hit me hard because it's been so long, right? Like it's going to be eight, nine, my gosh, nine months, probably a year since like I've ran, which has been such a big part of my life, which is really hard. So I feel like I failed in terms of like listening to my body and like 
taking care of it when it was trying to tell me that something was wrong. And I guess, like, without trying to, like, be too hard on myself, I've been, like, trying to think of how I can, like, learn from this. And one of the things that I've really taken the time to do throughout recovery is read a lot of books about mindfulness and mindset and, like, listening to your body. And I've been practicing a lot of mindfulness and meditation. And I feel like these are practices that I'll continue to keep with me forever, right? And I feel like now it's been such a great opportunity to really like practice these things that I wish I would have started practicing a long time ago. And I also think it's been interesting to think about why like I consistently want to push through pain when like running and like thinking about how when I was did gymnastics a long time ago, it was very much like this mentality of like pushing through the pain and like almost being rewarded for that. Like I remember competing like on a broken ankle, like a broken nose and like walking off of the floor and like being praised, right? Like you're such a tough cookie, like you did it. And it's like, it's so interesting to like think about, and I've been talking to other runners who like think about how it's tough or considered like toughness to like push through pain almost. Right. Yeah. When in reality, the toughness should be having the strength to say, okay, I'm having this pain. I should see if it happens. Like next time I'm running, if it's a recurring thing, like I, it means I should take some time off. I should reevaluate some things. I should go to the doctor like before it gets mm-hmm. to the point of being something chronic and possibly something more serious. I think this one hit me hard because of the long recovery and just like the long process it's been, which has been like expanded with COVID and not being able to like, you know, schedule things for like months at a time. And so that's been hard and just like learning to live with pain and like manage it. But I guess the learning in this and what I would just like to share is just thinking about engaging in practices like mindfulness to just learn more about your body and um, rather than pushing it past pain, like just learning how to work well with it and treat it well. Yeah. So you can continue to move and, and yeah, live, live an active life. I like what you said there. Like mindfulness is exactly the opposite of pushing through something, right? Like pushing through something is Mm -hmm. sort of ignoring it or brushing it aside. But if we're really being in tune with our bodies, then we should be treating them (laughs) a different way. I think it sucks that you had to go through all that you've had to go through, but I love that you're trying to learn from it and also share that with others. Yeah. And if anyone else is having chronic pain or having to manage pain, I would just definitely recommend, there's like so many books I could recommend, but I've read like Full Catastrophe Living and Breakthrough Pain is another book. And just like thinking about practicing, seeing if maybe some of these practices would be helpful for you. Yeah, I feel like I can't go on without at least spreading some word of like how I felt like it's been helpful in my life. Thank you for sharing. That works so well with our episode talking about adapting and like personalizing interventions and knowing people's different baselines and understanding yourself. So yeah, totally. Well, thanks for listening. I wasn't expecting to like share so much about what I've been going through on uh, the podcast, but I feel like it's, we're still 
sometimes we share like well, a lot of times we share the fun things that are going on. And I think it's important to like also share the tough things that are going on. Things have been so crazy, just like in the world, like we talked a bit with Matt about. So I feel like it's only right to like recognize some of these troubles and challenges as well. Definitely. Great advice and a great time to pump up your reading list. <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah, please reach out to me if you want any suggestions on books or just like want to talk about it any further. Like I am really, really passionate about things and these ideas and practices. So I'm always happy to chat more about it. Cool. Well, on that note, thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, we always appreciate all of the support. And thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics for their support of the podcast. We'd also like to say if you want to share a research fail or someone to interview or you'd like to get involved in a student voices episode, really anything you have any really positive feedback about how our voices sound on the air and they lull you to sleep at night during quarantine, like anything on that, please email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or feel free to follow us on Twitter at biomechanicsoom. Yeah, and thank you to Peter Washington for the boom music. I also feel like I should say, since I've talked about the surgery, I need to thank my mom for flying out to California from Ohio to take care of me for three weeks. I wouldn't be able to record right now without her because I would not be functioning. She since gone to Ohio, but anyway, thanks, mom. <laughs> I want to say thanks to your mom too because she's an amazing woman, and I'm glad that you're sitting up for one of the first times that I've seen you sit up for in a while. So I feel like you've made a huge and amazing recovery yeah. too. Yeah, it's really painful and I'm have ice packs all around me, but I am sitting up. <laughs> but, Baby steps. Anyways. <laughs> so thanks mom. Thanks Hannah. Thanks everyone. <laughs> I'm <listening>. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're Melissa. Uh, yep. I'm Hannah. <laughs> Biomechanics Bio off our minds. Off our minds. <laughs>